Good morning. This is Dr. Matthew Dunn, host of the Future of Email Marketing. My guest today, Steve Werner. We're just getting a chance to meet. So, hey, Steve, welcome me. What is going on, Matthew? I am excited to be here. I know that I have a lot of fun things to share with you. Yahoo. He's all well lit. If you're listening, Steve is well lit and well mic'd. It's like actually talking to someone in a studio. It's very, very cool. Um, give people the, you know, orient, orient people about the things that you do as an entrepreneur. Sure. So 2013, um, I went and saw Tony Robbins and I was like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. I think that's that's what he does to people. Yeah. Um, so I quit my corporate job and started an events company because I wanted to speak on stage, hold live events, mm -hmm. uh, failed miserably out of the gate. <laughs> um, went like blew through my 401k, blew through all the money I had saved, went into a bunch of debt. Uh, but I figured out how to hold live events. Um, up until COVID, we had held about 70 events for myself and for clients, uh, more than $15 million in cumulative sales between everything I have touched. Wow. Um, done really well there. During COVID, we pivoted to help people with webinars and selling online. Mm -hmm. uh, the back, like everybody asks, what's the secret? The secret is authenticity, connecting with people, and beyond, behind all of that is stories. Um, I know you teach email specifically, so my my two cents on that um a year ago well about a year and a half ago um at the end of 2022 we looked at where everything had come from for us and uh we'd spent more than thirty-five thousand dollars on facebook ads mm -hmm. and we found that out of all of my high ticket clients they had either come through speaking or through jv partnerships and they had all responded to an email that i sent Around the same time, do you know who Ben Settle is? No. All right. Ben Settle is a, a guy that teaches email marketing specifically. Um, he's really mean and not fun to deal with at all. Like he purposely <laughs> tries to be as disgusting as possible. Um, but I interviewed him on my podcast and he said, I challenge you to write an email every day for the next 30 days and make an offer. He said, do you have a low ticket ice, uh, thing? I said, yes. He said, do you have a high ticket thing? I said, yes. And he said, I challenge you to write 30 emails and sell one of the other, one of the things in every email yeah. and you'll have one of the best months ever. So we did that in February of last year. And sure enough, we had a very good month. And uh, yeah. So we, I did email before that. Um, but it changed the way that I do my emails. I email three to five times a week now. Um, wow. yeah. pretty stream of conscience, tell a story, yep. make an offer, yep. tell a story, make an offer and it works great. Wow. Wow. Nice. And, and, and to write them yourself, obviously it just, yep. just, just from, just from your phrasing, um, is your, as you said, out of date LinkedIn bio accurate that you spent time as a sommelier? I did. That is correct. <laughs> wow. Cool. My, uh, the, the short story on that in college, I started a business that did well. It was not my dream business. It was a commercial cleaning company. Um, I sold that and I traveled for two years and I ended up in Chicago, um, in the early two thousands and I got a job as a bartender. I'd worked in restaurants through high school and college. And, uh, I got a job that was supposed to be one day a week. Well, I worked on my next business. Well, within a year I was managing the place because, you know, we can't just be an employee. Um, from there, uh, ended up working at several fine dining restaurants, Michelin starred restaurants around the Chicago area, and then was headhunted by Vail Resorts in Vail, Colorado to run one of their fine dining restaurants, which in turn led to me learning a whole bunch about wine and becoming a sommelier. Oh, okay. Okay. And you got to hang out in the ski area, which is its own, uh, fun little microcosm of, absolutely of, of various things. Yeah. Vail's a, Vail's a nice spot. And then you time at Telluride as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, so when I first went out on my own because I knew restaurants, um, I was like, well, I'll do consulting. So I consulted for Telluride and I did consulting for another ski resort called Okimo, which is in Vermont. Yep. Yep. But while I was doing that, um, I, I launched the live events company. Yeah. Um, 
that was like the tail end. Cause I was like, I can't keep consulting in restaurants. I'm going to go nuts. Um, plus you run in, I ran into the same kind of challenge I had working at a restaurant, which is there's, there's a pay ceiling. Um, I wanted a business that did not have a pay ceiling, mm -hmm. um, and public speaking and being on stage and selling from stage gets rid of most of that. I mean, there's still a ceiling, but it is way, way up there. Nice. Nice. And you said Tony Robbins was, was a real inflection point for you. Yeah, that is correct. So, um, I went to see Tony Robbins and at, like going through it, I was like, I liked what I did. Like, to be very clear, I liked working as a restaurant manager. I, it was, it was a fine dining restaurant. So it was a pinnacle. I got to deal with great customers, my staff. I got to cherry pick my staff. Mm -hmm. Um, and I liked it, but looking at like looking at it, I was working 60, 70 hour weeks and I was in the top like 0.02% of the pay scale for restaurant managers. You know, I was making about 120 a year and I didn't go up from there much. Yeah. Like that's, there's, there's not pretty much out of all, like, I actually thought about it cause I was like, maybe there's a restaurant there that I can either own or go work at. I found two restaurants that paid more than what I was paying out of everything in the U S. Um, we worked like I did a bunch of research. I could only find two restaurants that would pay me more. Um, and ownership of a restaurant was not what I wanted to do. So yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that's like being married twice or something, right? Like <laughs> a restaurant. Seriously. I, I, I don't think you ever get away from it. That's my impression from arm's length for people who I know who own restaurants. Woof. That's a, that's a tough business, isn't it? It's, I mean, I liked it. It's not for everybody. That no, is for sure. No, I, I think you gotta, I think you gotta love doing, love being there in it, like up to your elbows kind of a thing. Oh, every day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Every day every day and, and food being food, I'm married to a, married to a chef, like food being food. You also can't take your eye off things ever. ever. Right. Ever. Right. Like, oh man, that's like, I, I, I can say, let the server handle it. Let the cloud deal with it by contrast. Right. I can automate, you can't automate food very well. No, no yeah. not, not going to automate food. So the interest in, uh, the interest in, and passion for obviously story, where'd that come from? Um. Well, I guess if we start at the very beginning, when, when I worked in restaurants, um, I talked to a lot of people, right? Talked mm -hmm. to people on the floor, talked to people that were staff. Mm -hmm. Um, but you tell a lot of stories, like as the major D slash manager, you're entertaining, especially at a high level. The reason people are paying four five, $600 for dinner is because they want an experience. We're at the top of a mountain, but they also want to hear things. They want to know about where Vale came from. So. You got to be very good at stories there. Mm -hmm. When business started, I started breaking down when I started holding events. What makes a good event and what makes a bad event? A bad event, we've all been to them, right? The first thing that you notice is the sessions, the whether they're breakout rooms or whether they're keynotes, usually they're not in any order the bad ones, right? It's like, why did they put this person next to this person? This person's talking about something opposite from this person and it makes no sense. So usually what happens when you go to one of those events is you're like, well, I need to be in the room at 11. I need to be in the room at three. Otherwise I'll be out of the room. Well, from a sales standpoint, that kills your sales because the reason that people buy from you, especially a high tight, high priced item mm -hmm. is because they know, like, and trust you. Well, if they're only in the room for two out of five sessions, how well do they know like and trust? Yeah, yeah. So that's the first, like it's, it, we called it like a scatter plot or just like, it made no sense. This person can speak, this person can speak. They're not charging anything and they'll fly for free. Cool. We got them. That's a horrible way to build an event. The other thing that I noticed going back and looking at Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins, um, Brian Tracy any of the greats that were on stage, if you break down their presentations, I'm very analytical. I have a pretty analytical mind. If you break down their presentations, they are more than 70% story. They tell something, they tell a story about it. And that's, or they start with the story and then they tell you the main point and then they break the main point down mm -hmm. because 
here's the thing in Western culture. Western culture, if I tell you something, you need to use more email in your business. I immediately come up with a wall, right? Well, I don't think I really need to use more email or I know I need to use email, but that means I have to write them and I don't want to do that. Yeah. You now have a, a discussion where one person is on one side, one person's on the other side. If you have kids, if you're listening to this and you have kids, I want you to think about this in that term, right? When you tell your kids something, what do you get? Why? Why do I need to do that? What? No. If you tell a story though, we can't help. Humans can't help but to put ourselves in the main role of the story. And we go through the story as that person. So if you purposely use stories and you create curiosity hooks and open loops, that moves people towards a sale without the resistance. If you, for email, for instance, I, I tell people all the time, they should send more email. It's not something that I sell. It's not something that I teach, but I tell my clients, you should use more email. I've had this discussion three times in the last week, but I don't tell them they should use more email. Instead, I tell the story that I told at the beginning of this podcast right. about how we spent $35,000 on ads. But when I looked at where stuff came from, yeah. all of our high ticket sales, and my high ticket sale is twenty-five dollars to $100,000. Mm -hmm. That all came through email, not through ads. Email's yeah. free Indeed. or about as close to free as you can get. As close to free as you can get. Um, open loop define. Sure. So an open loop is when I tell you, I have a method to writing emails that works really, really well to get people to respond and buy things. And then I change the story right? and I go to something else. Right. Well, what happens? Everybody says, well, do you have that template? Where can I get the template? Yeah. Yeah. It creates a space and this is the hardest thing to do. It's so hard to teach. You literally have to go back and like practice it because as our ego, this is like real psychological stuff, but our ego is fed by giving people the answers and looking like an expert, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. By not giving people the answers, it creates that white space where people can lean in and say, how do I get that? Or I right. want that. Right. Right. But our ego is like, oh gosh, now I don't look so smart. I didn't get to answer the question. So an open loop. So a curiosity hook, first off, curiosity is the strongest human emotion that causes people to take action stronger than fear. This was a, this was a test that was done at Harvard and they found that curiosity is the number one driver of something. So if you can make people really curious, really curious, mm -hmm. they'll lean forward. Mm -hmm. They will take some kind of action to do the next thing. Mm -hmm. So curiosity in emails, where do you need curiosity? You need email in your subject line and the first line of the email. If you get them because the subject line is to get them to open the email. Sure. Yeah. If you're depending what program you're using, yeah. you might get a blurb as well that you can manipulate yeah. yep. and put whatever you want as the blurb. So that's, what's going to appear in their inbox. The whole point of those two things, is get them to open the email. Yep. Then what's the point of the first line of the email to get them to read the second line of the email? Yeah. What's the point of that to the, this is where it gets interesting. The second line of the email should get them curious about what's at the end of the email. So if you loop it all together, right. They're like, Ooh, I have to read all this. Then they're going to start skimming. There's a whole science to it, but that's how it works. Yeah. It's like, like those, uh, like those cotton picking long form sales websites, like early on some big red text that makes you go scroll to the bottom to see the, right. To see the price tag, which now they don't, they don't put it at the bottom. They put partway back up. So you scroll back up. There's a lot of science to it. Though. There's a lot of science. Yeah. A lot of science, a lot of data, a lot of, uh, a lot of manipulation too, to be fair, but like, okay, that's, uh, that's marketing in a fundamental sense. Wow. Uh, there's a, there's a researcher. I don't, I don't think she's well known now. I happen to have spent academic time on this, but there's a researcher named, uh, Renee Fuller and she, she, her scholarship back in like the eighties or nineties, she argued that story is a basic cognitive structure. I think she called it story Engram, E-N-G-R-A-M. Um, and it's like, it's so sensible. You're like, yeah. How do we make sense of the world? 
like narrative yeah. structures. You ask them about their vacation, they'll tell you a story and they'll usually tell you a story about something that went, went sideways, not about things that went well. Why? Because there's conflict and resolution and it makes a much better story than we went on the tour, we got on the bus and everything was completely, you know, planned and, and, uh, and bland and so on. Right. It's like, that's, that's actually not as interesting to our brain as right. It didn't work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, every time I hear a story though, it's boring. Or I can think of like my grandpa telling stories and I just would roll my eyes and fall asleep. It's because one, either there wasn't enough conflict or two, they included way too many extracurricular items, right? And they're jumping all over the place. So you can't follow it. Yeah. Yeah. A well, a well-told story has conflict, has drama, and it's a story of the resolution of that drama. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it's funny. I was just chatting. The reason I was a couple minutes late, apologies for that. I was just, uh chatting with a colleagues over in the UK and, uh, his, uh, his daughter, teenage daughter, and I won't name him, uh, his teenage daughter is into theater. And we were talking about that. We were first getting acquainted and he had this panic look on his face. And I wrote him this fairly lengthy email about why he should calm the heck down and that that's fine, that she's going to learn lifelong skills like the one that you're really talking about in depth in that particular field. She'll probably end up being a very good storyteller among other things, because like it's the essential dramatic arc and pairing away all the stuff that doesn't need to be there. That makes a great play work. Basically. Yeah. 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 Well, fascinating that fascinating for you to put those pieces together live and then talk to me a bit about the pivot to webinar. I mean, the, the, why the external motivation is kind of obvious, but, um, how to work did it do as well as you'd wanted it to? So, well, okay, let's, let's rewind. Um, January of 2020, um, I was, I had three live events that I was building. So I, I never took on more than four in a year, um, because it's, it's very intensive. It usually takes me three to four months of planning. There's a whole lot that goes into holding a successful event. Mm -hmm. So I had three booked out for the fall of 2020. And I just moved to Phoenix. I live in Airbnbs. Um, I travel wherever the events are, which is a whole different story. So I just got to Phoenix and I thought, whatever, this whole thing, it's going to blow over. It's not going to be a big deal, blah, blah, blah. So the week before the lockdown, I had, I was actually doing a lunch and learn style event, which is a two hour presentation. We buy lunch for people and it was for doctors, doctors, dentists, and chiropractors, um, and we we're teaching them about marketing. And we had 75 RSVP. Usually you get around a 60, 70% show up rate. We had a 10% show up rate. Right. And I was like, oh man, maybe. And the people that were there were super nervous about everything. And I was like, oh man, maybe this is like, maybe this is going to be a real thing. Well, then two weeks later, like we're on lockdown, the just so you got like, this is a behind the scenes for doctor's offices. Most doctor's offices are an in-cash practice and they really can't survive beyond about two to three weeks. They usually have somewhere between, I don't know, we'll call it like 600,000 and a million coming in a month. And their expenses are usually 90% of what they have coming in. So doctor's offices are all panicked. Like those, I was like, oh man, this is going to be, this is going to be some craziness. Um, then everything goes on lockdown, like can't get groceries. I'm getting things delivered. Nobody's on the road. So in this, I had booked when I first moved to Phoenix, uh, I was dating a girl and I had booked a Van Halen concert. Do you remember Van Halen? Heck yes. <laughs> okay. So Van Halen was coming to Phoenix and I bought tickets through Ticketmaster and all right, whatever. It's a cheesy date, but I thought it was going to be super fun. I was like, we'll go see a hairband. It's going to be awesome. So I called Ticketmaster. I'm, I'm like sitting there one day and I was like, you know what? I got those tickets there. That's probably not happening. <clears throat> so I called them and I, I said, you know, it wasn't that much. I think the tickets were about 40 bucks a piece um, for like lawn seats. So I called them and I said, you know, no big deal, but obviously that's not happening. And they said, well, we're not going to refund you you will get to go see them next time they go on tour. And 
if you could see Matthew's face, like he's like, what? And that's what I, I was like, we don't know when they're going on tour again. Right, right. And my argument to them was, I was like, look, I could see if this was like three or 400 bucks or if they're VIP seats, even then you should be refunding me. But I was like, we're talking about, it was less than a hundred bucks. I was like, really, you're going to get bad press because I'm going to go leave you a bad review. Yeah. And the guy was like, I'm really sorry. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. So I got off the phone, but what hit me was I had more than a hundred thousand dollars in my bank account from the people that had paid me to hold Bible fets. And like, I didn't sleep very well that night. Cause I was like, oh man, like I hadn't really thought about that. We were, I think we were a week into lockdown. Maybe. Yeah. Wow. And, um, so I went back the next day and I called all three of them and I said, look, we don't know what's going on. I don't know if you need the cash, but I don't feel right holding on to it. I don't know what's going to happen. So we refunded two of them and they were very gracious. Um, the third one I'm having the conversation and the guy I have to say was, was brilliant because he said, well, we're going to have to move online. Have you done one of these webinar things? I said, actually, we've done a couple of them over the years. Um, we could probably help you with that. And he said, well, why don't you keep the money? Help me develop the webinar. Okay. So that's what we did. Um, that first webinar, we ended up, uh, he had a list. He also was willing to run some ads. Uh, we did more than $80,000 during launch week. And then you're like, Right now, to date, he's at over, I believe he's at over 600,000. Um, the beginning of the year, he's over half a million. Um, so that, that got the ball rolling. Yeah. And I uh, thrown a lot of stones at virtual events yeah. over the years because yeah. I was an in-person events guy. I didn't feel like it would be with integrity to pivot and now be like, oh, and virtual events. So we helped with webinars. Um, it went really well. Uh, we've at this point, we've done 34 different webinars or re helped people fix broken webinars, 34 in total. Um, and we're about $5 million in cumulative sales, just over. Nice. Um, wow. Wow. Okay. That's a pretty successful, uh, pivot of necessity. What, uh, what are some of the key lessons learned about what, what makes a virtual event webinar work? So there are a couple things. The first one is story. Um, so we always start with what's your offer and your offer should have five to seven, maybe nine things that are specific. Mm -hmm. Then we look at the pain points linked to those things. Why are those things important to the people that are listening to you? Mm -hmm. Once we have those two, then we start building out the stories. Where's your story on how, why that is created? Why is, why is that part of your offer? We start looking at those stories. We start looking at the stories in the marketplace. Why do people struggle with this pain point? If we can tell those stories appropriately in the front piece of the webinar, mm -hmm. it gets people to lean in. Unfortunately, I mean, how many, how many people listening to this, like cringe at the word webinar, right? Because what did we all do during COVID? We sat on zoom and watched really bad presentations. Yeah. Lots of them. Horrible. Like who wants to do that? So instead we find ways to tell stories that are short. They get people leaning in. We also taught people to do the presentations without relying on slides. Mm -hmm. Nothing is worse. Nothing is worse. Say it with me. Nothing is worse than putting slides on a zoom presentation and hoping that people follow along because what's the first thing you do? Yeah, you start looking at you start looking at that, or if, if you're not glazed over, right? You, it, you're looking at you, right? You, if you're, you're not glazed content. over, you're getting glazed over. Yeah, like, yeah. and you're getting you're like, turn my my camera off. I'm gonna go get some coffee. This is dumb. Yeah. Like, it doesn't work. But the unfortunately, and I don't think that anyone's doing it with malice. I don't think anyone once builds a presentation is like I'm gonna be as boring as possible. They're, they feel like their ego, and I did this in the beginning. It's one of the reasons that I failed for the first six months, first couple of events that I held, because we put everything into the presentation. We're like, we're going to teach them so, 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 so much. And what happens? Like you glaze over. So yeah. if you're, if you're like, what do you mean? Stay with me here for a second. I want you to go back, go back to high school. And I want you to think of your favorite teacher. Do you remember your favorite teacher, Matthew? High school? Yeah. 
sure we'll go with Mrs. Stewart. Okay. So just remember what her class was like. Now I want you to think of your least favorite teacher. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Probably if it was like mine, he was at the blackboard. We didn't have whiteboards, blackboard yeah, scribbling away. Yeah. Yeah. And like might look over his shoulder and say something to you. Yeah. But just yak, 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 yak. Right. Yeah. If you were like me, you took a nap, you read a book, maybe you ran out the back door. Now go back to your favorite teacher. Yeah. Probably did not teach as much. Probably knew your name. Teach as much, right? Yeah. You could come up, you could walk in a minute or two late. Yeah. They probably knew what sports you played. They probably knew what, if you were in band, they probably knew something about what was going on with you. Yeah. And they probably gave you some study hall time. They probably did some other things in class other than teach. But now the two questions, one, I bet you can remember something that your favorite teacher taught you. Mm -hmm. even though we're now a I mean, few years yeah, after <laughs> yeah 30 years later yeah the other thing is which one which one knew more would you say mm -hmm. yeah yeah but does it matter right right all that matters so when you're teaching something whether it's in an email whether it's on stage whether it's through a webinar whether it's a meet and greet networking meeting over zoom mm -hmm. the only thing that matters is that how you made somebody feel. If you made them feel good and got them one big aha, one big aha, not 50, one. If they were like, oh my goodness, that person will remember you. That person will yeah. get, because it's a dopamine rush, right? Like yeah, yeah. if we get really scientific yeah. in an email, yeah. like a lot of people teach really long form email. That works some of the time. But where do most people read email right now? Yeah, mobile phone, right? 300 words or less, make them smile, make them chuckle, make them snicker, make them have some kind of single emotional response other than this is too long for me to read right now. <laughs> yeah. If you can do that, yeah, they will open your next email. They will have a positive association to what you're doing. Right. Same goes on stage. This is why you see people, the, Tony Robbins, get up and jump up, yeah. jump up, get out of your seat, jump around a little bit. You're getting an emotional, physical response. He's brilliant. Yeah. Like he, he's doing it in a positive way. But one, if you, have you been to a Tony event? No. So he goes from 8 a.m. until usually 2 or 3 a.m. And he says, we're going to go as long as you're here. He is brilliant at activating adrenaline and positive, positive feelings. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you don't realize that it's 11 o'clock at night. You're just like, I love what's going on. This is great. Nice. And then you look at your watch and you're like, it's 2 a.m. I gotta be back here in four hours. <laughs> you run home, you get a few hours of sleep and you're excited to be there in the morning. Right. And like, he's really good. So what he does, the science of it, to pull the curtain back a little bit, every eight to 10 minutes, he has you get out of your seat, jump around, move around a little bit, mm -hmm. give a massage and dance. Then you sit back down. Emotion. He knows Zen emotion. Yeah. Well, and he knows that if he doesn't get you out of your chair every eight to 10 minutes, you're going to pull out your phone. You're going to be on Facebook. You're going to be on social. You're going to be doing something else yeah. because our brain is wired to do that. So every couple minutes he has you do something and then you sit down and then you're back in state and you're, you're, because what happens when you sit down in your chair to do something, yeah. you're like, okay, I'm here to do it. I'm going to pay attention. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So he just keeps repeating that loop yeah. infinite times. Anyway, now you know all about events. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Makes uh it, it makes a ton of sense. There's a there's um there's a book you might enjoy. I've I've actually ended up mentioning it multiple episodes of this uh podcast. I guess it's a, a formative one for me. There's a book called The Social Life of Information. Okay. Paul, uh, John Seeley Brown and Paul Duguid. Um, John Seeley Brown was the head of Xerox Park. So if you're a techie, you go, ooh, Xerox Park. Um, basic gist to the book, the way we learn is through stories. <laughs> what was the title one more time? The Social? Social Life of Information. And it was written before Facebook was a thing, by the way. Wow. Yeah. There it is. Ah, it's a great book. 
Yeah. It's Got a it. Book. Yeah. Done. And I think, uh, and every, everything you've been saying tracks with, with the conclusions those authors came to as well. Yeah. So, and, and as a theater guy, it makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. Um, is it a hard thing to get people to park all of the sort of corporate bullshit, like PowerPoint templates and so on and go, it's like kindergarten, man, tell a good story and you'll win. So there has been resistance sometimes in yeah. some places, but what I, anyone who has resistance. I can usually point them because I've worked with enough people over the years. I've worked with, I mean, a couple hundred one-on-one, -on -one, um, couple thousand in groups, like probably 20 or 30,000, but I can usually point to an example in their industry and show them somebody who does it my way and somebody who does it their way. And I usually don't use my way, their way. I, because I sure. create sides, right? Sure, sure. You always just want to say like, Hey, check out this person. They, they found the way to do it and just watch what they do. Mm -hmm. And then when they come back, I make, I tell them to watch it. I say, what did you see? And usually it's that they told a lot of stories yeah. and they were very engaging. Yeah. So I've done some work in financial planning. And if you look at most of the people who are pitching as a financial planner, Mm -hmm. They have pie graphs and charts and all of this stuff. All, what does that do right away? Like, yeah. you're just like, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. Glade. High school algebra. Thank you so much. Yeah. Like, but if it, what, what, so think about that. If you're listening to this show and you have a financial planner, yeah. great. If you don't have one, that's also okay. What's the first thing that comes to mind though? I want somebody that I trust, trust. to manage my money. Exactly. Yeah. Trust is not built through pie graphs. It's built through <laughs> stories. Yes. So you guys might be saying, well, what kind of stories would you tell that build trust? What do you guys know about me from when COVID started? That is a specific story that I tell. I refunded over $100,000 out of my bank account right. because my integrity was more important yep. than keeping money. Yep. yep. I put yep. my clients first. Yeah. That's a simple story that builds trust. Yep. The, yep. and that's exactly what we do with our clients. Like, how do you, this is the other thing, like people, everybody wants to know a guy, right? Like I lived in Chicago for a long time. I got a guy for that. I got a mechanic, right? My car is broken down. Who do you know that could fix this? I got a guy. Well, how do you become that guy? You share personal information because that makes people feel like they know you. Even if you're doing it through email, I have an email list that is over 7,000. On that list, I get personal responses because I write a personal email. Yeah. I will get people who respond like they know me mm -hmm. and they do because of my emails. Yeah. I don't know them, Yeah, yeah. but I do my best to respond. I mean, I'm, I'm very transparent. Yeah. Um, and that, that builds, it does two things. One, people believe that they. They know you, so they know, like, and trust you. But two, it also gives you a little bit of leeway. Like, have you ever messed up in business? Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. We've all messed up, right? right? We're not perfect. Yeah. If they feel like they know you, yeah, they're much more likely to be a little bit forgiving and give you a little bit of grace. Yeah, yeah. But who are the people that we're the hardest on, right? The people that we price shop. If you go to Walmart and you buy something and it's broke, you are livid. You're in line, you're returning it. You're like, give me this stuff back. Same with Amazon, right? You buy something, it shows up slightly damaged. That's a different, because it is a corporation, number one, that yeah. you don't have a personal relationship with. Number two, you price shopped it. Mm -hmm. When you are price shopping something, you feel like you are owed. When you are buying something because you know, like, and trust the person, you still want a good result. Don't get me wrong. And do not use this as like, don't misquote me and say like, he said that you can get away with whatever. No, you still have to deliver a quality product. What I'm saying is if something goes slightly off or you, you know, you miss a deadline or you lose an email or all the things that can happen. Yeah. People are much more likely to understand because they see you as a human yeah. first. Yeah. And a company second. Yeah. 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 Makes good sense. Uh, I the, mean, uh, one of the guys, there was a, I don't know if he's still there, but 
early arc of social media, Twitter in particular, um, one of the companies that everyone hated, I want to say it was Comcast, had one employee who was, he was just phenomenal. I think he was on their Twitter account, but he was phenomenal at being a person and, and, and actually giving a toot about the problems that, that people surfaced on Twitter and like almost single-handedly uh, took the jagged edge off their brand by just being a person, right? Like, oh, you know, you know that's wrong. I'll, I'll chase someone down. We'll figure out how to fix it or refund it or whatever else. Like sort of, you, you know, your satisfaction is more important than, uh, you know, than the policy language that says we don't have to do this a la ticket bastard. I'm sorry, ticket master. Right. <laughs> Does that mean that's exactly right? Yeah. The, when, when you put a face to a product, yeah. you're much more likely to have feelings and understand it, um, which companies have gotten better at over the years. Some of them still get it better than others, but yeah. Yeah. There you go. I'm, I'm intrigued by, I'm intrigued by the write it yourself, personal approach to what's still a marketing use of, of email. Cause I mean, on one hand that's, that's work and it's not like you could outsource that to someone. It would lose the detail, the tone, the per like the personal and you say, well, does that scale? Hmm. Is that the right way to ask the question? Um, I, I always end up picking on this outdoor, uh, outdoor sort of sporting goods retailer that I've, uh, been a customer of for a long time there. Mm -hmm. I've bought a lot of stuff from them. And as I always say, they still don't know what I like after over a decade and thousands of dollars, which makes me nuts. But they're also bland, corporate, here's the sale. There is zero person or personality to it. It's like, probably got an, they probably got an email team of, you know, 20 people. Like, take one person and say, you're it, right? These are all coming from you. You're going to write them all build a relationship with our customers. That's your job. So I have, I have two things that I will say, and I'll approach it from both sides because I've helped, even though I don't teach email, I've helped corporations and I have helped solopreneurs or we'll call them uh, influencer driven. Mm -hmm. Corporate to your sporting goods would do so well to tell a story of a user who bought the thing. REI does this. REI does that very well. Yeah. Yeah. They will pull out a product that somebody bought and you'll get an email about how they use the product. Yeah. What does that make you want to do? Oh, they enjoyed using that product and it did what, what they wanted it to. So I mean, even if you don't buy that product, yeah. it then gets you interested and you click on the link and you go look at the product and maybe you'll buy one of the other products that they offer. That is not hard to do. Right. because it's user-generated content. You put out an email as a corporation. If you're a corporation and you're listening to this, all you have to do is put it on email and say, we would love to hear your stories. We're going to pick the top two or three and give you a $10 gift card. You now have 500 emails yep. of stories yep. using. Yep. Good. That is yep. so easy. Yeah. Um. That's a success story. As an influencer, which is more what I am, right? Like I am... I'm, I'm the main face of my business. I have a few employees behind the scenes, but we do most of the stuff. I write the emails. I will tell you my grammar is horrible. My spelling is horrible. My sentence structure, all of it's horrible. I am not writing a book. I am not a best, like we won't say best-selling author. I am not a best written author. I'm not going to win a Nobel prize for my writing style. It's really funny. Um, the very first email I ever, ever sent. Um, I used a program called Sendy, S-E-N-D-Y, mm -hmm. um, which I thought the writing pane had an editor built in. It didn't. There were 27 misspelled words. I know that because a lady responded and said, there are 27 misspelled words. And I said, well, you know, I wrote it. I'm sorry. I was like, my mom would be really embarrassed because she's a first grade teacher. And then actually that lady ended up buying from me because she was like, I wasn't expecting a response, but I just wrote her a response. I said, okay, okay. blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. The, the emails that I send, this is what it's so funny because I've had, I've had people that are very well known in 
digital marketing space and the coaching space come to me and say, how do you get the open rates that you get? Because I'm, I'm consistently over 35%. Nice. And I say, we've talked about some of the things. First, great subject line. Second, great opener. Um, if you haven't read, hang on, let me find the book. There's a book called Great Leads. Oh, I've not, I've not heard that one, though. No. Uh, are you familiar with Agora? Agora yeah. is, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Largest financial publishing in the world, multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. They employ 200 internal copywriters. Yeah. This was a book that was originally written um, internally for Agora. Um, so it's all about the opening paragraph um, because that's what's going to get people to read. Um, it, it translates then down to that opening line. Um, anyway, those two things paired with everybody who reads my emails knows what I'm doing. They know who I am. And for better or for worse, they know me. They know, and I make an offer in every email. Whether it's a PS or down at the bottom, I make an offer to do something. Whether it's to buy from an affiliate partner of mine, whether it is to buy one of my courses or one of my VIP days, or whether it's to fill out a survey to see if you want to work with me one-on-one. All of those things go in my emails. People respond, people buy, and people read. People read because they are curious, because I talk about I talk about things that are going wrong in my life. I talk about things that are going right in my life. I talk about experiences. I talk about people I have on my podcast, but I always try to build some curiosity and to make them involved in the story. They're usually short, right? Three to 500 words so they can read them on their phone. And I try to make sure that people, what did we talk about earlier? Have a positive emotional response to whatever is there. Yeah. 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 That's yeah, it. Yeah. And that grammar and spelling stuff, this is one of the, one of the things that has long intrigued me about email um, because we all have used it for, you know, at this point, decades. Um, it's much more like speech than writing, you know, writing in quotes, right? You get put some in front of open Microsoft Word, give them the keyboard, they go into vapor lock and they have, their high school English teacher ghosting over their shoulder, right, to do it right. But you have a beer with them or you send a one-to-one -one email and they throw most of that crap out the window and get to the point a lot quicker. It's usually more interesting. It's usually more engaging. It's usually a little more memorable. It's like, hmm. And it's easier to read. <laughs> it's easier to read, yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. The thing that, this is, this is something that I, I talk about a lot with people being on stage. Why is public speaking the number one fear in the world? I don't know. I don't have it, but yeah. People are scared that they're going to be judged. Oh, okay. Interesting. The same Interesting. thing is tr any, any personal fear usually comes back to what are other people going to think? Right. What are people that don't know me going to think? Yeah. The yeah. same thing is true with email. Yeah. The reason I have told people, I've told people the method that I've described here in short conversations, long conversations. I had a conversation last week with somebody that has 20, 21,000, 22,000 people on their email list and they email once a week because they're so scared of what people are going to think. And they're like, we spend like two hours on that email. I'm like, spend 10 minutes and email five times <laughs> That's as good much. Advice. That's really good advice. Spend 10 minutes to do it twice a week instead, right? Like, five times a week or five and times they, a week. Yeah. They, their response was everyone's going to unsubscribe. And I said, who cares if they're not, this is the thing. Like, I don't know what your view on unsubscribes is, but if people are unsubscribing from my list, that's awesome. That means that they are not the right fit to buy from me. It's not like I'm going to build up this massive email list and I'm going to send a Goldilocks email that's going to have like fairy dust fall from the ceiling and they're going to buy something. The whole point of an email list is that they get relationship with me. They know, like, and trust me right. and they will buy an offer. Right. If people unsubscribe, cool. You're not the right person. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> it's like the same. Would you go to a bar? If you went to a bar, yeah. let's say to watch a football game, to watch Super Bowl, and you sat down and you didn't like the person next to you, would you ever buy something from them? Yeah. Yeah. Duh, right. No, probably not. Right. Would you get up and move down the bar? Maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's okay if somebody doesn't like you. It's okay if somebody, it's not a personal thing. Who cares? Maybe they're not in business anymore. Maybe they're not looking for what you do. It's okay. And believe it or not, when, when I was challenged to do the 30 days of email, my number one thing was, I'm going to get a lot of unsubscribes. He said, I bet you will get, he was like, here's what you do. And I'll, I'll share it with you. If you're going to try this out. The very first email I sent, the first three, I led with a paragraph that said, things are going to change around here just to give you a heads up. One, that's curiosity hook. Oh, what's changing? The next paragraph, that was the opening line. Next paragraph was, I'm going to start emailing a lot more because I got challenged by a guy who has been in the industry for 20 years and he emails every day. And he challenged me to do this. So I'm going to start sharing more stories with you. I was already telling stories. But I was like, I'm going to start sharing more stories with you. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to receive them, I understand. Here's the unsubscribe link Good. right up top. Yeah, right up top. Nice. Day one, I had maybe 35. It was less than 40. Mm-hmm. Day two, I had less than 20. Day three, I had none. I lost about 60 people off of, at the time, a 5,000 person list. Good riddance. Yeah. You're not the right person. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So you could use that. I copy and pasted that in the first three emails at the top. Yeah. And that was it. After that, <laughs> it has been life as normal. Yeah. Occasionally I will, occasionally I will do something like that again. I also put it in my, I, I do have an onboarding sequence when somebody opts in for something. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first email says I email three to five times a week. It's a personal story written by me. One, please don't respond and tell me that I spelled something wrong. I don't care. I do the best I can. <laughs> Two, they're personal stories. If you don't want to read them, don't. don't read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. That's a, that's a great, great <clears throat> set the tone too, right? Because it's what you're going to follow up with. So you might as well tell them up front. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, it's setting expectations. Yeah, my read, my read on, it's also a little bit of an open loop, right? Ooh, I'll at least stick around for the first story. Um, my read on email marketers writ large, and I would, I, you know, I, that, that's not what I, it's not how I would describe myself, but I'm, I hang around with a lot of them these days. A lot of them are petrified about unsubscribe and it just baffles me. It's like, you know, like I, I literally don't know. I, I don't have enough interest in doing the unsubscribes that I should do. When I look at my inbox, it's like, unfortunately, it's easier to delete, right? So there's a bunch of people who I'm wasting their time and energy and they're wasting my time and energy with stuff that I'm just no longer interested in or I'm not going to buy again or whatever the heck the equation is, right? The courtesy I should do them is go unsubscribe. But so many companies make it hard sort of hide the, it's like whack-a-mole trying to find that, no, get me well, off this friggin' list button. I mean, they think, I guess if you're a corporation, let, let's go back to the sports store. Maybe that's a little bit different because maybe one day there will be a neat, like you want to buy running shoes sure, yeah, and they'll sure. randomly have a running shoe sale. Okay. Maybe that makes sense, yeah. but more often than not, that's not going to happen. Right. In our world though, as a influencer or as a influencer based marketer, right? Like if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, if you're a dentist, we've done this with dentists and we have seen it grow their business because who do you want to go to a, like, who do you want to go have serve you as a dentist? Somebody, you know, like, and trust. Yeah. Yeah. It works. Yeah. If inside of that world, if they unsubscribe, they're, it's not like they would open one day and be like, I really need a dental checkup, right? Who says that? No one ever. ever. So who cares if yeah. they unsubscribe from your list? But the reason it goes back to the people's biggest fear, it's, oh my goodness, somebody doesn't like me. Yeah. I annoyed somebody. Yeah. I Man, 2015 or 16, I don't remember the exact year, I dated a girl who was a life coach. And she didn't have a very big list. I think she had, I think it was 1100 is the number that sticks in my head. But she said, I said, how often do you email? At the time we were doing three a week for my business. And she said, 
oh my goodness, once a month. She was like, if I email more than that, it would be considered spam. And I was like, actually, once a month, they probably don't even know who you are. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Like, it's fair. You don't, if you're scared of spam, if you don't want to be annoying, twice a week, at least. Because here's what happens. Most people, they don't unsubscribe to your point. So they're getting 800 emails a day. That's the, av- I heard that somewhere. I don't know. I, to me, that seems crazy. But, <laughs> does, but if if they happen to open their email, the chance that your email is even in the first 20 is almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Like email, 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 email. That's it. Well, and, and one of the things that you hid, hidden inside what you just said, behaviorally at least, and, and my friend Delaquist says this and he's right about it. He's like, even if they don't open it, which they're not going to 80% of the time on average, right? They see your name. And that alone is part of that. Oh yeah. Ongoing. Yeah. That ongoing. Oh yeah. And, and if they do open it and it's positive, interesting, makes them laugh, whatever. And then right. ignore the next 10, you're still building up some, you're still building up some, uh, you know, some, some relationship credits and karma in the bank or whatever that, that it's not a, it's not a negative if they do bother to open the thing. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think your advice is, uh, advice is right on. Um, I think it's hard for companies at a certain scale to, to keep the personal voice side of it. Um, it's like I everyone mean, gets a corporate lobotomy above a certain scale. <laughs> I have, a, I, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah. And I, I, I do have to wrap this up as I have yeah. another call, but the, my two thoughts, one, how awesome would it be like Tony Shea? I don't know if you remember Tony Shea, yeah. RIP, like owner of Zappos. If you felt like he wrote a personal email once a week, yeah. would you read it? Yeah. If Steve Jobs yeah. would have written a personal email once a week, would you have read it? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Sure. If, I mean, think about, I'm trying to think about brands that we would want to buy from, like anything that we buy, if they took the, in, let's even go with REI. We talked about how they do like user generated content, yeah, yeah. but what if it was the CEO of REI or and he Chenard, said, Yves Chenard at Patagonia, right? If you wrote yeah. an email, right? I'd be like, okay, please forward that to me kids. <laughs> right. Right. Like you would want to read that. So if you're a corporation and you're listening to this, use your personal voice. Yeah. 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 Well put. Well, you've got to wrap for another call and I tied you up for an entire hour, but it was really, really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. No problem. It was my, pre- my pleasure, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me on. If someone's hooked by this, where do they go to look for more about your business, Steve? Sure. Two places I will send you. If you want to jump on my calendar, learn more about what I do, see how we could work together. Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N dot coffee, C-O-F-F-E-E will take you to my scheduler. You can jump on. Um, we'll have a short conversation. The second thing, um, you can learn more about me at reachingmillions.co. So that's reaching, R-E-A-C-H-I-N-G, millions, M-I-L-L-I-O-N-S dot C-O. Um, that will take you to my website. You can learn a little bit more about me there. Cool. We'll get your next call. Thank you, Steve Werner, for the time today. No problem. Matthew, thanks for having me.